0: Good morning. Well, even though I'm somewhat tall, uh, I didn't start playing or watching basketball until after college. So not only are the finer points of basketball completely lost on me, but I struggle with the basics as well. And this point was brought home for me one day when I was playing a pickup game with guys from work uh, because I saw the opportunity for a rebound. So I went for it, and to my surprise, and quite frankly to the surprise of everybody else, I came down with the rebound, and in my excitement, my mind defaulted to the last piece of advice my friend had given me on basketball. He said, when you come down with a rebound, don't wait, just shoot it. So that's what I did. Problem was that it was a defensive rebound, so the basket I had just attempted was for the other team. Thankfully, my shooting skills are no better than my rebounding skills, so neither point no points were scored for either team. I tell this story because those who have been redeemed by Jesus play on his team and not on sin's team. That's the point of Romans 6. This morning we're going to think through Romans 6, 1 through 4. And in that passage, Paul asks the question, should we continue in sin so that grace may abound? He's asking, if we're saved by grace, should we just go on sinning so that we get more grace? And Paul's response is quite simple. Don't you realize what it means to be saved by grace? It means that you play for Jesus' team, that he's your team captain, and you don't play for team sin anymore. Because of what Jesus has done, you play for a different team, so you should act like it. By Jesus' obedience, he has purchased your life, so don't act as if he hasn't. So if you haven't done so already, please turn to Romans 6. And if you're using a Pew Bible, it can be found on page 942. While you're turning there, let me give a brief overview of the book of Romans. The Apostle Paul wrote the book of Romans around 25 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he wrote Romans as a letter to Christian churches in the city of Rome. And in Romans 1, 16-17, Paul gives the purpose statement for the book of Romans. He wrote that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And the rest of the book of Romans is a detailed explanation of how the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of of those who believe and what that means for our lives. So please follow along now as I read. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to understand this passage, that we would understand what you're communicating in it, and that you would use this passage to change us for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. So today we're going to begin by... uh, Looking at this passage under three headings. First, we'll ask, Should we live in sin? And then we'll look at Paul's answer No, you died to sin. And then we'll look at what this means for us Don't sin. So, if you want to summarize Paul's teaching in Romans 6, 1 through 4, you could summarize it with those three points Should we live in sin? No, we died to sin. So, don't sin. Or if you wanted something a little longer, You could summarize it by saying that God has transferred you out of the domain of sin and into the kingdom of His Son, so live like it. Let me say that again. God has transferred you out of the (coughs) dominion of sin and into the kingdom of His Son, so live like it. So with that summary in mind, then, let's dive into the passage. To see what Paul is saying in Romans 6, 1-4, we need to understand the question that Paul is trying to answer in verse 1. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And that's the first point we'll consider this morning. Should we live in sin? And if you look at verse 1, the, the question that becomes before that question, which is, what shall we say then? That question gives us a, a pointer for where we should start to understand this. The then, in that, in that sentence, tells us that Paul's question about sin and grace doesn't just come out of nowhere. It follows from what Paul has previously written in the book of Romans. Earlier in the service, our brother Matt read Romans 5, 12-21. In Romans 5, we have a discussion that is key to the entire book of Romans. It helps us understand what Paul means when he says that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. In Romans 5, verse 12, we see that Paul says that sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. That one man is Adam. God is the holy and righteous creator of you and me and everything else that exists. He created Adam and Eve, the first people and put them into a beautiful garden, and he supplied all their needs. And he gave them a charter. He commanded Adam and Eve to bring him glory by making the entire world a place of worship for him. And he only forbade them one thing. They must not sin by eating of the forbidden tree. Tragically, Adam and Eve did sin. This is what Romans 5 is talking about. Sin came into the world through Adam and death through sin. Death is the consequence of sin. It's the penalty for the guilt of sin. And death reigns over people because of sin. The sinful rebellion of those made in God's image didn't stop with Adam. All of us who have descended from Adam have followed in his footsteps and sinned and rebelled against God also. And so, As Romans 5.12 says, death spread to all men because all sin. Paul wrote the book of Romans to explain that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. So the gospel is the good news that Jesus came as the second Adam to do what Adam failed to do. Jesus came as a mediator to bridge the ethical gap between God and man. Adam was the unfaithful, law-breaking human son of God But Jesus, the eternal Son of God, is the faithful human Son who came to earth and lived a perfect life. Romans 5.15 says that many died through the one man's trespass, Adam's trespass. But the grace of God and the free gift of righteousness abounded through that one man, Jesus Christ. One trespass brought condemnation, but one man's obedience brought justification and life. Jesus lived the perfect life and earned obedience, and on the cross he did an exchange. He gave his people his perfect righteousness, and he took the sins of his people and suffered for those sins to pay the wages of the guilt of their sin. So we are justified, or counted righteous, because our guilt is taken away and our sin is atoned for in Jesus Christ. This is what, this being made righteous is what theologians call justification. We're justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. So having explained the doctrine of justification in Romans 5, Paul moves on in Romans 6 to ask the obvious follow-up question. Look at Romans 6.1. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Paul's asking whether the gospel allows or even encourages sinful behavior. Romans 5 taught us that we're saved not by our acts of righteousness, but by Jesus' act of righteousness. We're not saved by our good works or obedience. We're saved by Jesus' good works and obedience. Which leads us to Paul's question. If we're saved by grace, should we sin more So that God shows more grace. Because grace is, after all, a good thing. So should we sin more so that we get more grace? If this sounds like a purely hypothetical or a purely theological question to you, I'd like to offer to you that a form of this question is so often our question. If I'm saved by grace, if Jesus has fully and finally paid the debt for all of my sins, past, present, and future, then does it really matter how I live? Does it really matter if I obey God? Does it really matter if I live in idolatry? Does it matter if I lust, or gossip, or slander, or get angry? Can't I just sin, and then confess it later, and rely on God to graciously forgive me? This isn't a merely theoretical question, and it's not a question just asked by theologians when they want to fit stuff into neat categories. It's the question that we ask when we're struggling with sin. Or maybe, depending on what we tell ourselves, the answer is, maybe we're not struggling with sin. Maybe maybe we're giving in to temptation because we've convinced ourselves that it really doesn't matter what we do because we're saved by grace. Maybe we use the grace of God as an excuse to keep sinning. The question of whether or not we can continue in sin is an important question because it's so often our question and how we answer that question has crucial importance for our lives and for how we understand the gospel itself. So how does Paul answer this question? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And this brings us to our second point. No, we died to sin. Paul responds to the question with strong language. He says, by no means. And some translators translate this as, absolutely not, or may it never be. Paul's emphatic and passionate in his repudiation of this view, because as we'll soon see, such a view misunderstands what it means to be saved by Jesus, and it misunderstands what Jesus accomplished in his life, death, and resurrection. To show that continuing in sin is unthinkable for the true Christian, Paul asks another question in verse 2. Or sorry, verse 3. He says, how can you who have died to sin still live in it? It's unthinkable that the Christian should live in sin because Christians have died to sin. So what does it mean that we have died to sin? That's the most important question for this text, and it's really the key to understanding this text, and and really Romans 6 as a whole. So to explain what it means that Christians have died to sin, Paul continues in verse 3. He says, "...do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death?" So in this verse, Paul is using baptism as sort of a shorthand for our entire conversion experience. So while Paul certainly is talking about water baptism... His point isn't to talk about water baptism directly as the ceremonial event in the Christian life, but rather to talk about what baptism points to. The Greek word for baptize is used in ancient Greek literature to speak of a violent immersion. This is why Jesus could refer to his death as his baptism in Luke 12.50. Jesus was violently immersed into the grave. Paul is saying here that when we were converted which includes faith repentance and ultimately baptism we were baptized into christ or to put it another way we were violently immersed into christ through our conversion through our responding to jesus in faith repentance and baptism we've been united to jesus christ so what is this union with christ what paul has in view here is our being joined to Christ when he accomplished our redemption. We see this in verses 3 and 4. Verse 3 says that we were baptized into Christ uh, when we were baptized into his death. So Paul's saying that through our union with Christ, we were made, in some way, participants in Christ's death. And verse 4 says that we were buried with him. So we've been united with Jesus in his death and burial, And then we've also been united with Him in His resurrection. This is exactly what Romans 5 makes clear. It says, For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. Those who have been united to Jesus through faith were united to Jesus when He accomplished our redemption in history. We were united with Him in His life, death, and death. resurrection so that when he died we died when he was buried we were buried and when he was raised we were raised with him and now that we've been united to him by faith all of the benefits of our redemption in jesus that he accomplished for us are being applied to us so the union of christ and his people is the basis for all the benefits of salvation So with that understanding of union with Christ in our minds, let's remember that Paul's answer to why we can't continue in sin is that we died to sin. What does it mean to die to sin? Well, we've seen in this passage that because of our union with Christ, we were united with Christ in his death. So our dying to sin is immediately connected to Christ's death. So then we have to ask the question, what is the significance of dying and being buried christ you see when adam sinned and plunged the human race into rebellion and sin he inaugurated a realm or an age that age is this present age and it's the realm in which we live it's the realm where sin reigns in death sin reigns through death because every human being born since adam has been born into this sinful world And we've been sinners, and we've had to deal with the reality of sin. Romans 6, 16 says that people are slaves to that which they obey. As descendants of Adam and as sinners ourselves, we are slaves to what we obey, sin. So if we sin, we're slaves to sin, which leads to death. And so sin has mastery or dominion in our lives because of the sins that we've committed Sin reigns in death, and the power of sin lies in its guilt. This is our state apart from Christ. This is the team that people play for apart from Christ. People live in the realm of sin, play for team sin, and their team captain is Adam, and the reward for playing is death. In our sinful condition and as descendants of Adam, we're slaves to sin, and sin reigns in death in our lives, because of our guilt. This is why Jesus is so important. Jesus was everything that Adam failed to be. Adam was sinful, but Jesus was sinless. So as the new Adam, Jesus went to the cross as the perfect substitute for the sins of his people. And as he went to the cross, he took on himself the guilt of all the sins of his people. And in so doing, he voluntarily placed himself underneath the reign of death. Death reigned over all the descendants of Adam because of our guilt. So when Jesus voluntarily took our sins on the cross, he took our guilt and placed it on himself. And because death reigns in guilt, Jesus voluntarily died to pay the penalty for the guilt of his people. But he didn't stay dead. The wages of sin is death. And so Jesus died for the sins of all of his people. He paid all the wages for all the sins of his people with his death. But as Kevin DeYoung has written, Because sin had no wages for him that he could not pay, there was nothing to hold him in the grave. Jesus rose from the grave because death could not hold him. It had no claim on him. And God raised Jesus up and vindicated him. Jesus was the acceptable sacrifice, and when Jesus rose, he beat death. So, what does this have to do with us? Well, for one, Jesus paid our guilt, and that's the glorious truth of the doctrine of justification that Paul talked about in Romans 5. But that's not the sum total of what Paul is talking about here in Romans 6. Paul is going further than Jesus paying for our guilt. What Jesus accomplished is more than just our justification. Jesus ended the reign of sin in our lives. Sin reigns in guilt. And you and I are descendants of Adam, and we have sinned, so we are guilty. So, because of our sin, we live apart from Christ under the dominion of sin. We were born into this present age in the realm of Adam where sin reigns and we are slaves to sin. That's the condition apart from Christ. But Jesus through his life, death, and resurrection ends the reign of sin and death in the lives of his people. In his death we died to our old way of living and we were violently immersed into his way of living. Look at Romans 6 verse 7. One who has died has been set free from sin. And then look at at verses 9 and 10. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So when Jesus died, he ended the reign of death. He ended the dominion of sin. But how does that help us? So look at verse 6. Verse 6 says that we know that our old self was crucified with him, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So we died with Jesus. We were slaves to sin, which leads to death, but Jesus died instead of us, and in his death, he put death to death. Therefore, we're no longer slaves to sin. The reign of sin and death in our lives is over. When Jesus died, we died with him, and we died with the sin. Brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, you are no longer slaves to sin. You died to sin, and sin no longer has dominion over you. Sin is not your master. Through Christ's death and resurrection, as Colossians 1.13 says, God has delivered you from the domain of darkness and transferred you into the kingdom of his beloved Son. You used to be a slave to sin following the ruler of this age, but God has placed you into the age to come, and you are a new creation. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the pivotal moment of all of history. When he came, he inaugurated his kingdom. And in his kingdom, Jesus reigns through righteousness. When Paul says that we died to sin, he means that we have died to the old age. We died to the realm of sin. Sin no longer reigns in us. The old you, the you that was a slave to sin, that you died with Jesus. And as Galatians 2.20 says, you have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you. And the life you now live, in the flesh you live by faith in the Son of God, who loved you and gave himself for you. Because of the work of Jesus, you play for a different team. You used to play for team sin, And you followed your team Captain Adam in rebelling against God. You followed your own law. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart to God's teaching. You have become slaves of righteousness, and you now play for Team Jesus and follow your king and captain in obeying God's law joyfully. That's what it means that we have died to sin. But now what? What do we do with that? And that brings us to our third point, don't sin. Not only are you dead to sin, but you've been raised with Jesus to walk in newness of life. Look at verse 4. We were buried, with, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Jesus' death marked the beginning of the end of the old age where sin reigned, and his resurrection marks the beginning of the age to come where Jesus reigns in righteousness. When he was raised by nature of our union with him, we were raised with him to walk in newness of life. Paul's point in Romans 6 is that we can't continue in sin because to do so would be to keep living in the old age, where sin and death have dominions. But we don't belong there anymore. We don't play for that team anymore. We've been raised with Christ and we've been transferred into the age to come. So to live in sin would be to keep living in the old age and keep playing for our old team, but that's not who we are. Paul is saying, how could you continue in sin that grace may abound? Look what's happened in your lives. How could one who died to sin still live in it? Why would you present yourselves as obedient slaves to sin which leads to death when sin has no dominion over you? The ethics of the Christian life have their root in who Christians are through the work of Christ. Our growing in holiness has its foundation in our definitive holiness through what Christ has already done by transferring us out of the realm of sin and into his kingdom where righteousness reigns. Someone once said that Christianity is summed up by the following phrase, justification by faith and sanctification by struggle. But that's not the picture that God gives us through Paul here in Romans. Paul presents our progressive sanctification or our growing in holiness as being grounded in the definitive sanctification that Christ has already accomplished for us. One of the themes in the New Testament is the theme of the already, but not yet. Jesus has already inaugurated his kingdom, but he has not yet consummated his kingdom. Jesus has already dealt the death blow to sin and the devil, but he has not yet fully vanquished all evil. So the Bible is full of this concept of the already, but not yet. And sanctification, our our growing in holiness, is no different. If you are in Christ, you've already been united to Christ by faith. And and through his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus has already changed your position. He's already delivered you from the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of, of himself where he reigns in righteousness. He's already made you his. He's already made you holy. But we all know that we don't yet act perfectly holy. And that's because Christians live in the already, but not yet. We live in the overlap of the ages, in the overlap of the two realms. It's like one of those diagrams with the overlapping circles. One circle is the realm of sin, and one circle is the kingdom of God's Son. And we live where those overlap. Because even though we've already been transferred into God's kingdom, We still, Jesus hasn't brought this age to a close yet. So we still live here even though we belong in God's kingdom. And so we live where those overlap. So we live in this fallen world and we must still battle the temptations and the influence of our sinful flesh, the devil, and the world. So don't get this idea that in this passage Paul is saying that Christians will no longer sin or that we can eventually reach the point where we're perfectly holy in this life. Paul is not saying that. Notice in verse 2 that Paul asks, how can we who have died still live in it? As one person has written, there's a world of difference between a person living in sin and sin living in a person. To live in sin is to continue in sin without repentance. Paul's not talking about occasionally sinning here. He's talking about continuing in a pattern of unrepentant sin. Sin will remain in the Christian in this life because the Christian remains in this present age, even though we belong to the age to come. But Christians cannot continue to live in sin as an unrepentant pattern because what we need to realize is that sin is a contradiction in the life of of a Christian. It's not who we are. We are made holy and righteous in Jesus. That's our new and true identity. One day Jesus will come back and bring this age to a close. One day Jesus will come back and he will consummate the age to come. If you are in Christ one day, you will never sin again. That's where you're headed. That's your trajectory. That's who you are in Christ. So don't sin now. You have died to sin. You've been raised with Christ. So walk in newness of life. One day you will never sinfully worship the things that God has made. You will worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. So worship and serve Him only now. One day you will never respond to God or other people in anger again. You will never wish that you are in control and God isn't. So don't respond to God in anger now. One day you will never use your lips to complain or gossip or slander or lie again. Because God's love is better than life, your lips will praise Him. So don't use your lips to sin now. One day you will never lust again. You will never look at people in idolatrous lust. Because instead, your eyes will behold the king in his beauty, and you will never again want to satisfy your eyes with anything else. So don't use your eyes to look at people in lust now, whether in person, on TV, or on the internet. One day you will never sin again. That's where you're headed. The sin in your life now is a contradiction, because you have died to sin. You live in Christ. You've been crucified with Christ, and so you live in Him now. So don't sin. Walk in newness of life. Be who you already are in Jesus Christ. Don't live in sin because sin is a contradiction in your life. You are in Christ. But sin is not a contradiction in the life of an unbeliever. Let me address those in the room who have not responded to Jesus in faith and repentance by believing in his life, death, and resurrection. If that's you, then you are still in your sins. You are still in the realm of sin, and sin sin still has dominion over you. When you sin, it's not a contradiction. It is completely consistent with who you are. The next time you sin, I want you to think about that. That sin, no matter how much you regret it, no matter how much it is detestable to you, it is completely consistent with who you are. And you are a slave to it. You won't experience any real freedom from sin or any change unless who you are changes. And you can't change yourself. That's what it means to be a slave. You need God to change you. The only way for you to not live in sin is for you to die with sin. And only Jesus, the only way that you can die to sin is to die with Jesus. So I plead you to think carefully about this. Only Jesus can pay the wages of your sin for you. Unless you hide yourself in him, you will have no cure for your sin, and you will face God's righteous wrath. I plead with you to look to Jesus, the second Adam, the one who came and lived perfectly and died in the place of sinners. Believe that when he died, you died with him. Believe that when he lived, he lived for you. Believe that through his grace, you can be part of the salvation that he accomplished. So turn away from your sin and turn to obedience to Jesus. Live in obedience to the one who can take sinners who are slaves to sin and deliver them from the domain of darkness and transfer them into the kingdom, into his own kingdom. If you'd like to know more about what it means to respond to Jesus in faith and repentance, please find me at the door after the service. I'd love to talk more about how Jesus redeems those who are in bondage to sin. As we conclude I want us to think about what all this means for our assurance and our hope. Some commentators view Romans 5 through 8 as as a sustained argument for assurance and hope. In Romans 5 through 8, that section is bookended by by two discussions that show us that the death and resurrection of Jesus is our source for assurance and hope. Romans 5 opens with a discussion of how we can be confident that that God is for us because he gave us Jesus while we were his enemies. God shows His love for us, the unrighteous, through the death of His Son on the cross. It's an extraordinary thing when someone will give their life for someone else. It's very rare, and usually that person is worthy. But God shows His love for us that Christ died for us while we were His enemies. If God was willing to give us Jesus while we were His enemies, how much more... Now that we aren't his enemies, but we're his adopted children, how much more can we have confidence that God will complete all of our salvation? So we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And Romans 8 concludes with a discussion how if God is for us, who can be against us? If God didn't spare his son, but lovingly gave him up for us all, how will he not with him give us all things? If God is willing to give us Jesus on the cross, is there anything we need that he won't give us? Is there anything that can separate us from the love of Christ? Indeed nothing, neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. In Romans 6, 1-4, Builds on this theme of assurance and hope by showing us that our resurrection is certain because of our union with Christ. We will be raised with Christ uh, and we can have confidence in that because if Jesus has been raised, He will raise us up with Him. That's what Romans 6 is talking about. Just as Jesus was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too will be raised up with Him on the last day. We will live forever with Christ in his kingdom because he has already inaugurated it and transferred us into it. Our newness of life is lived in the reality of his resurrection. When we walk in newness of life, we are living evidence for the hope and assurance that is found in Jesus Christ. One of the things that most encourages me and helps convince me of the truth of God and the reality of my salvation is when I see people who were once slaves to sin walking in newness of life. Seeing that gives me hope and assurance that the resurrection is real. When I see my brothers and sisters in Christ in this church, obeying Jesus and refusing to live in sin, I'm convinced that there is a newness of life that is made possible by Jesus Christ. And you help me see Jesus. So thank you. Keep walking in newness of life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for what you have done in Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have transferred us out of the domain of darkness and into his kingdom. And we thank you that soon he is coming back and we will be in his kingdom forever. And so we worship you and we thank you for all that you have given us in Jesus Christ. His name I forget.